Hasn't one of the best things of these live stream services been the Bible readings from home and especially from the children of our church? Thank you to each one of them. And I take this opportunity to say on behalf of everyone out there, a big thank you to all who have served in here and especially to Jeff and Megan Miller who have, well, made it possible. Let's pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, hope is an uncertain thing, isn't it? I think COVID's proved that. With the long-for get-togethers cancelled and holidays repeatedly postponed and future, un- uh, future employment uncertain for some, And as our hopes prove uncertain and disappointments mount, uh, some numb themselves or we try for a bit of escapism, except that till recently we couldn't escape anywhere except into a streaming service. Or maybe we distract ourselves with work or family or just trying to get on with the day-to-day grind as best we can, managing our expectations very carefully. I was deeply struck yesterday by this paragraph from the Australian's senior cricket writer, Gideon Haig. It must be unbearable in Melbourne, friends from interstate would say. No, I'd tell them. It was just bearable. You could get by providing you expected nothing good to happen. Everything to take twice as long as it should and no useful end to be served. You could get by providing you expected nothing good to happen. How sad is that? And even with reopening, things feel uncertain. And of course, it's not just COVID. Karen and I both have older relatives with Parkinson's disease getting worse. What do they have to hope for? In the last four days, I've heard of two sets of parents with a child dying suddenly, one school-aged, one at uni, and one of them an only child. So where's the hopes of graduations and grandchildren now? And what of the elusive hope for breakthrough in our own struggles with some particular sin, perhaps, of pride or anger? And yet hope is such a strong note all through the Bible. As we've noted in the New Testament, it's often combined with faith and love as the trio of cardinal Christian virtues. These three remain, says Paul, faith, hope and love. Well, as Christians, how do our hopes differ from the uncertain world around us? In Romans 5 and verse 2, Paul says Christians, I quote, boast in the hope of the glory of God. What is that hope? Why is he so sure we can can boast or rejoice in it? The first thing to be clear on is that when the Bible uses the word hope, it means to speak of the future in a no-so kind of way, not a wishful thinking way. That is, when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not just trying to summon some positive vibes about the uncertain. I hope to beat this cancer. I hope to find a girlfriend. I hope to get a better job. I hope we can do something about climate change. 
But gee, I don't know. It's more like when I say, I hope the sun comes up tomorrow because if it does, I'm going to walk the dog. I'm making a plan based on something I know is close to a dead certainty and that's biblical hope because God is even more sure than the sun coming up. Now, as I've considered this passage and its connection elsewhere in Romans, three things stood out about the glorious Christian hope. Three things you can rejoice in even when life seems fragile and things are hard. Number one, God is doing something good now. Number two, God won't turn me away later on. And number three, God will make things better forever. So let's unpack it. Number one, God is doing something good now. The first aspect of hope in Romans 5 and verses 3 to 4 almost seems like a diversion at first. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Future glory seems contradicted by present pain. But Paul says no, God can do something good even through our suffering. It's a word, this suffering word, that covers illness, socio-economic hardship, persecution, inner stress. A well-known cliche says you sometimes learn more about yourself in the valleys than on the mountaintop life experiences. Well, here the Bible says God can use suffering as a chance for you to persevere or endure. And managing to endure can develop your character and the outcome of this character, if tested successfully, can be hope. It's the sense that if you've managed to run one marathon, you can make it through another. Because you know the finish line will come and you can make it there. This, this of course, is no easy teaching. It's certainly not a teaching to dump on someone in the midst of their affliction. And I do not say here, for example, that the domestic violence suffered by a victim is somehow good or positively willed by God to develop a character. And yet, I do want her to hope that God can somehow bring her through and even bring some good for her out of such a bad situation. Because I do see this kind of growth sequence of trials, endurance, hope. It's repeated through the New Testament. 1 Peter 1, James 1 and here in Romans 5. Usually it's best to, to learn this idea, the theory, when things are calm. And then when the fires do come and you go through, you can sometimes look back and see how God was growing you up. I've mentioned before Toby, a quiet youth leader of mine, who ended up in traction for six months because he was T-boned by a taxi running a red light. Enduring an extended time of reflection flat on his back made him realise he'd left Jesus out of first place in his life, getting all busy with his career, losing focus on Christ. Now, he didn't get out of hospital any quicker but when he left, his life was back on track with God. 
when I walked the dog earlier this morning, I heard the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, come on. And verse 3 says, When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. Well, here's a second great part of our glorious hope, and it's that God won't turn me away later on. Romans 3 and verse 23 famously says, All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. You know, today humans, if they think about God at all, reckon he owes them a living. And yet they just take, take, take the good things they have for granted, forgetting to thank him just day after day for the gifts he's given. We do not love God with all we have and we do not love our neighbours as ourselves and the Bible says this is inglorious and shameful. But here we come to verses 6 and 7. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. We are unable to glorify God and be godly in a consistent way and yet verse 6 says Jesus died for the powerless and ungodly well I'm using up all my revisiting all my old good old illustrations as I finish up and when I was a kid I was just reminded going to the optometrist uh, once lockdown finished to get new glasses uh, I had a firecracker blow up in my face it was my fault I tried to relight it leaning over it. My head was scorched, my eyes were damaged and it would have been worse except for the blessing of thick glasses. Later, I found out that my grandma had insisted on offering to donate her corneas if that's needed. I don't know if she understood ophthalmology real well but she was willing to lose her sight so I could be able to see again. Well, that's what you do for family, isn't it? The love of a grandma. By contrast, my favourite Bible verse 8 here shows the magnitude of God's love. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for family and friends. He didn't die for the good people trying hard to be on God's side. Now it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we'd made any move to turn back to God, clean up our act, he'd already acted to rescue us. One of the Bible's big summary words for the result is justification. And you see it used in verse 1 and verse 9 here, since we have been justified. Justification means to be declared not guilty. What happens when an accused in court is declared innocent? In our case, it means we're forgiven despite being sinners because Jesus' blood covered our sins. And justification is said to have present benefits. Verse 1, we have peace with God, not cranky with us for our past. Verse 2, we have access into grace. That is, we can stand before God Enjoy his presence and and pleasure without fear. You you might say, though, that's, yep, that's, that's past. 
But what about the future? What happens if I step up again? What happens if I slip? Well, here's the point of verses 9 and 10. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? My summary is this second point, that God won't turn us away later on. You know, not if we stumble in sin, not if we disappoint in discipleship, not if we struggle with doubt, God won't give up on us. Verses 9 and 10, you see, are future tense. We shall be saved, and it's said twice over. Talking of that final day of judgment, the dreadful prospect of having to give an account. Every person will have to do this to God for your life, explaining every single sin you've ever committed. How could you excuse that? And yet, if you've put your faith in Jesus and his blood, it says here you've been justified by faith, acquitted through trusting Jesus. And future tense, you shall be saved. Your past justification means that when the heavenly courtroom comes into final session, you will be pronounced not guilty. For every past sin and every future sin, you are still yet to commit. Jesus will step forward and say, I died for this one. And so later at the end of this middle section of the letter, uh, Romans 8, Paul says, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He says, not life or death, not angels nor demons, no suffering or danger either, and no accusation or effort to condemn you will succeed. Now, there is, of course, plenty else in this letter of the Romans to discourage a slack attitude to sin and to encourage you to keep on repenting and trying to grow. Good works don't lead to salvation, we say, but salvation should lead to good works. But the logic here is that if God did the hardest thing of all, sending his son to die a real death on the cross that we sinners deserve, bearing the wrath sin deserves, he's not going to pull the plug on us later on and waste all that sacrifice for his adopted children. You might let yourself down, but Jesus will never let you down. And so thirdly, this last aspect of our glorious hope that I've detected here is that God will make things better forever in the end. And again, we need to jump forward to chapter 8. And I I do that because the same hope and glory concept from chapter 5, verse 2, this hope and glory, it comes up again. Just turn with me to Romans 8 or listen along as I read from verse 17. Now, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. God doesn't ask you to go through something his son avoided, which reinforces the first point. If we suffer as Christians, it's no different to what happened to Jesus, except that we didn't have to bear our own sin. But if God can bring something good out of the suffering of the cross... He can work good out of whatever suffering you go through too. 
And to this third point, it says there is glory ahead. And in fact, it says it's Jesus' glory we'll share. Look how it goes on from verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Will we be able to reach that net carbon zero? Stop climate change before it just gets too bad? Well, frankly, knowing human nature, I'm not that hopeful. But I know God will make it better. The hope guaranteed here is that creation damaged by us humans will be liberated from decay. And God will restore his world. Now, no Christian could mean that, uh, could think that means we can just go on now selfishly exploiting the natural resources. But I do think believers know deep down that ultimate environmental hope comes not from human efforts, but by God's transformative intervention. And the end of verse 21 ties all that hope up with being brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What is this hope with God's adopted kids? Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We're already known as God's children, but the redemption of our bodies is ahead. The glorious freedom of the children of God is to have our bodies redeemed. This means freedom from the decay, the same decay the rest of creation is experiencing. So no more burning out, no more crashing out. No more breaking down, no more stressing out, no more rusting out. This is talking about the general resurrection at the end of the age. In particular, it's the resurrection of the body. Just as the Gospels record that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, never to die again, those who have entrusted themselves to him will also be raised with him and will be transformed. That that hymn... When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy will fill my heart? Think of bodies racked by cancer or motor neuron disease. Think of bodies twisted by cerebral palsy or weakened by stroke. Think of minds afflicted by mental illness or weakened by an acquired brain injury. All that will be gone when God gives us our new redeemed bodies in heaven. And as I like to say, Kleenex will be out of business for good. That is glorious hope, isn't it? To be like Jesus, to be with Jesus, what joy shall fill my heart. But it only applies to those who are in Jesus, to those who have been united with Jesus 
by faith in his death and resurrection. As you saw in chapter 5, as to those who are justified by faith, by trusting his blood. You can't have hope without last week's topic, faith. It's critical to entrust yourself to Jesus and what he's done for you, what no person can do for themselves because there is no other source of lasting, transformative hope. My conclusion is that we ought to exult in this hope. Uh, And look, exult is just another way of putting Romans 5 and verse 2. We, We boast, we rejoice, we exult in the hope of glory. God is doing something good now, even if it's hard, to make us more like Jesus. And and since we know he already gave up Jesus for us 2,000 years ago with our worst in mind, we know he won't turn us away later on and he's promised to make things better forever in the new creation. Friends, these are not just truths to know in our heads and to be able to list one, two, three. A hope of glory should lift our hearts I skipped Romans 5 and verse 5 in our passage. It says, Hope will never disappoint us. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I love Romans 5 and verse 8 as the objective proof of God's love on the cross. But verse 5 says, His Spirit gives us a subjective appreciation, a subjective assurance of that love in our hearts. Earlier this week, uh, for some reason, I just happened to pick up this uh, journal, The Global Anglican, (laughs) and read some qualitative research on the experience of Christian dementia sufferers. These are the people who are no longer finding it easy to remember their own life story, who can no longer follow a, a... a small group discussion or compose a properly coherent prayer and sermons are going over their heads and yes snippets of scripture or hymn lines remain but they certainly can't really neatly articulate the objective basis the atonement you know for feeling loved by God that they learned earlier in life Here's the kind of things they said in this qualitative research. Ron, I haven't got a memory. We we may have a bit of trouble, but I'm going to heaven. I'm content. Alice, God is never going to desert. He's always there. He's prepared a place for us. The Spirit is at work even in those dementia patients. And, you know, as we still can sing and can pray in a sense we can help be their memory and reinforce their hope alongside ours the hymn i mentioned earlier ends by saying the soul that on jesus has leaned for repose he will not he cannot desert to its foes that soul though all hell should endeavor to shake he never will leave he will never forsake. I'll pray the end of Psalm 33 as a prayer of hope. We wait in hope for you, Lord. You are our help and our shield. In you our hearts rejoice, for we trust in your holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.